Today's focus is very much along the lines of all of these different pieces today uh, that we've experienced in our service. The Lord intends us to gain knowledge and understanding to help us. So let us pray that our hearts will be open. Father, right now send your Spirit to direct our minds. Help us to understand this important issue and how it frames our understanding of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So we're finally fully into summer, and just like we have done the past two summers, so again this summer, summertime means frames. Here they are again. If you're new and you haven't been with us the past couple of years, allow me to explain. Two years ago, Pastor Bernie felt strongly that we should spend some time preaching doctrines, or more specifically, the 28 fundamental beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. When he first came up with this idea, it was particularly apropos because the time was the summer of 2015, which just so happened to also be a quinquennial session of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, which is nothing more than a fancy way of saying the general meeting of the Adventist Church that happens every five years. And one of the reasons we were approaching this issue that summer was because some of the fundamental beliefs were up for revisions in their language. Some of the revisions which, if you'll remember at the time, I was not convinced was really a good idea to be making those revisions. But regardless, the changes were adopted, proving at least one of two things. Number one, I was wrong and the changes needed to occur, or number two, I was right and we really shouldn't have done that. Now, if only knew which one of those was true, right? Isn't that always the challenge? I suppose this is a bit of a self-centered way to look at it, but regardless, the modifications to the language were adopted. You see, not everything goes the way I want it to go. Does anybody else's life ever go like that? Yeah, not everything goes the way I want it to go, but that's one of the challenges we will always face when we become a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. We push for what we believe, and then we trust the Lord to lead, even if it doesn't go the way we would have preferred. So what has been the result of these changes that took place a couple years ago? Well, on a practical basis, the changes haven't affected us much at all, have they? We probably don't even really remember exactly what they were. And this fact could cause you to wonder, if changing the statements doesn't really impact us, what's the point of studying the fundamental beliefs in the first place? It's a fair question. However, I think it's also a question that fails to perceive the bigger picture. And it's a question that reveals a certain misunderstanding of what the fundamental beliefs actually are. So without spending too much time on this, let me try to state what the fundamental beliefs are not and what they are. So first of all, what they aren't. The 28 fundamental beliefs are not Scripture. We don't claim that because we had a majority vote on this language, it therefore becomes Scripture. Okay, so they're not Scripture. They're also not a creed. 
The purpose of these is not so that we can better define who the heretics are. And an extension of that, the fundamental beliefs are not a tool for disfellowshipping the heretics. That's not why we did this. So what are they? The fundamental beliefs are statements of our shared core understanding of the teaching of Scripture. They are probably not in and of themselves the exact understanding of any individual. They are our shared understanding. The fundamental beliefs are subject to change, which proves we can't see them as infallible, right? If we can change the language later, then it means it isn't infallible now, right? And the fundamental beliefs are a useful tool by which we can determine if what we believe is in fact aligned with the shared understanding of our world church. They're very useful. They're very valuable when we use them the right way. The standard for how well the fundamental beliefs reflect ultimate truth is the degree to which each fundamental belief rightly reflects the teaching of Scripture. But then this is exactly why we cannot view these beliefs as creeds. For which of us, alone or as a group, has ever perfectly understood the fullness of Scripture? See, our founders knew this. They called what they believed present truth, meaning we expect to learn more. And the process by which we establish the wording of the fundamental beliefs is a majority vote process. Does that automatically mean anyone who voted against a certain wording is automatically from that moment forward a heretic because they were outside the majority vote? No. No, it doesn't. The point is this. The fundamental beliefs are for us very useful frames. But they themselves are not the picture. And that was the second genius thing that Pastor Bernie did two summers ago. He gave this ongoing series its name, Frames. The fundamental beliefs provide us with frames in order to help us to contain and delineate the boundaries of our beliefs. But the beliefs themselves are not the picture. The picture is Jesus. The purpose of the fundamental beliefs is to help us gain a better picture of Jesus. The beliefs are the frames. The picture is Jesus. So with that reminder, let's dive in. If you were today to go to the website of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, you would see a tab at the top of the page that says Beliefs. If you clicked on that tab, it would take you to a page where the shared consensus of beliefs is summarized. But if you wanted to go a little deeper, you would look on the right-hand side of that page, and there would be an option where you could click on a PDF of a document called 28 Fundamental Beliefs. These are the frames, and it is from these statements of belief 
that we launch our reflection today. And which belief are we considering today? Number 26, death and resurrection. The belief as voted reads like this. The wages of sin is death, but God, who alone is immortal, will grant eternal life to his redeemed. Until that day, death is an unconscious state for all people. When Christ, who is our life, appears, the resurrected righteous and the living righteous will be glorified and caught up to meet their Lord. The second resurrection, the resurrection of the unrighteous, will take place a thousand years later. And that's it. Now, this is a reasonably short statement, though one that establishes a clear demarcation between Seventh-day Adventists and many, if not most, Christians. I commend the writers of this statement for its pithy brevity and caution you not to assume because it's concise and clearly stated that it isn't very important. Rather, I am of the belief that this is one of the most important frames of all 28 frames. For the picture of Jesus, not to mention our perception of the Father, gets pretty warped if we don't find Jesus in this frame. Let me briefly summarize the frame as it's written. Death is the result of sin. God alone is immortal, but grants eternal life to the redeemed. Death is an unconscious state for all people, the righteous dead and the wicked dead. When Jesus comes again, He will, in the first resurrection, bring back to conscious life the redeemed that they might then enter into eternal life. And then 1,000 years later, at the second resurrection, the unredeemed will be raised to life briefly to face judgment, which will result in the eternal ending of their existence. Now, to get all of that, especially that last part, I had to borrow a little bit out of Fundamental Belief 27, but it's implied in 26. What I have just outlined for you is the Seventh-day Adventist understanding of death and resurrection and it is a point of significant departure from most Christian beliefs and statements of faith. Catch the key points. Humans have no eternal soul. In fact, of ourselves apart from God, there is nothing eternal about us. Now, Fundamental Belief 26 lists many texts in support of the statement, and we'll get to a couple of those in a moment. But for me, the deepest proof of the truth in this belief is not found in the snippets of statements from this place or that other scripture, but rather the deepest proof is found in the first lie recorded in scripture. And the first fearful doubt that that lie spawned a fearful doubt that I believe has festered throughout the generations from that day forward and acted as a poison fruit with all its baleful effects, even within Christianity right up to this current day. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. And there it is, the first lie, the deepest lie, the lie that goes to the deepest place in our fears. The notion that reality really is as it seems. Apart from God, we will live for a time, and then we will die, and when we die, we will really be gone forever. It's the deepest fear. Nobody captured this fear better than the author of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 9, verse 5, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Really? Is that really the way it is? Now, I know my body breaks down. I'm getting a little older. Some I've noticed cuts don't heal as fast as they used to. Has anybody else noticed that? takes like a week now for a paper cut. Come on. And I, I've actually been doing more stretching exercises than I used to. But it doesn't seem to help. I'm stiff. Boy, I ride in the car for like a half an hour and I get out and it's like, oh, yeah. I didn't used to do that. Even moderate labor leaves me sore for days. I can't even stay awake to drive at night. We talked about that last week. I can see that I'm breaking down. But isn't there something eternal about me? Am I really past the halfway point of my existence? Now, I don't suppose Eve understood all this like we do, because for her, death was just a concept. Not something anyone had actually seen or experienced yet for themselves. Yet still... Even though the gut-wrenching reality and terror of death had never been manifest in fullness to Eve, still, Eve was susceptible to this lie about the deepest of all our realities that apart from God, we die and go away forever. I would suggest to you it is this fear of death alone that keeps atheism from ever truly prospering. For in its truest manifestation, atheism gets this doctrine correct. When you die, it's over. Genesis 3, verse 4, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the first part of what the serpent says is a straight-up lie. The second part is a partial truth. For you see, up until then, 
up until Eve and then Adam ate the fruit, they had only known good. But after they ate the fruit, they learned what evil is. And you might be thinking, well, more knowledge and understanding, that's a good thing, right? Let me suggest wrong. You see, I could have happily lived my whole life not knowing there was such thing as pedophilia. I didn't need that knowledge. I could have happily lived my whole life never needing to experience having my things stolen. I'd have been fine. I could have happily lived my life not knowing what torture was. I could have happily lived forever in the presence of God without ever having known what sin is. And I could have lived happily forever never knowing what death is. You can decide for yourself, but as for me, I'm not seeing where the knowledge of evil is doing me any good at all. All evil ever brought me was pain and sorrow and loss and death. And those are the things I don't like. But we can't linger on this point. Verse 22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Now, I want you to catch something significant here that maybe you haven't thought about before. Even in their sinless state, the humans God created were not immortal. Instead, they received their immortality as a gift from God manifest to them by regularly eating the fruit from the tree of life. But once they had fallen away, God banished them from the garden and from access to the tree of life. And as a result, they began to deteriorate until they died. This relational dependency of us upon God for immortality is captured well in the fundamental belief with this statement. Did you catch it when I read it? But God who alone is immortal will grant eternal life to his redeemed. The point I want you to see is this. Even in sinless perfection, we were still dependent upon God for immortal life. There's nothing immortal about us. It is as the psalmist says, Psalm 90, verse 3. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. Only God is immortal. To believe anything else is to fall for the first lie all over again. But so many do fall for the first lie again, simply because it is so difficult to accept 
that when we're gone, we're gone. Especially when we see lives that end all too soon. I don't know how anyone can survive working in pediatric oncology. How can you live with that? That humans die, and what exactly that means, became clear enough soon enough for Adam and Eve when their oldest son Cain killed his brother Abel. Abel was gone and was no more. It is a hard reality to accept, and through the generations, many could not. That first lie in the garden, instead of becoming weak when it was exposed as a lie, rather grew stronger through the years. I mean, wouldn't you think that when they actually did die, you would go back and say, that servant was lying to us. But no, it is so hard to accept that we keep trying to find ways to make the lie true. Perhaps it's an easy lie to believe simply because the truth it be lies is so hard. Apart from God, humans die and are no more. Most of the pagan religions had elaborate notions of what happens when a human dies. And in this context, it's a little surprising how little the Old Testament spends addressing the issue of life after death. That's not to suggest there's nothing about it. We've already quoted a couple Old Testament passages Rather, it is to note that there is a certain amount of uncertainty regarding the issue of what comes after you die in the Old Testament. In general, it is accurate to say that the concept of an immortal soul as it is commonly taught in Christianity today was not the view held by the faithful in Israel. It seems from the text that to the faithful of Israel, death was death, the end, and nothing more. Psalm 146, verse 3, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Now, let me give you a little interpretive note here. Verse 4 says, when their spirit departs, they return to the ground. But something you need to understand about that word and the way it gets translated in the Bible. You see, in both Greek and Hebrew, there was one word for spirit, for breath, and for wind. And you could interpret that with any one of those words you wanted based on whatever bias you bring to the process. So we could just as easily read this, when their breath departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day their plans come to nothing. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. There was this concept in the Old Testament of Sheol, the place of the dead. And many Christians today seek to equate Sheol with hell, but it doesn't really work. First, there are times in the Old Testament when you're reading when those in Sheol are given a voice. But understand, they're given a voice of irony. 
You see, when those in Sheol speak, they're speaking to the powerful who have arrived in Sheol. And the only message they have for them is this. Look, now you've become as weak as we are. It's an ironic voice. For another, this Sheol is the place where everyone went when they died. Not just the wicked. The righteous went there too. In addition, there's no worship that came from Sheol. Isaiah 38, verse 18. For the grave, Sheol, cannot praise you. Death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, they praise you as I am doing today. So from this it is clear Whatever exactly they believed in Old Testament times, and I don't claim to know exactly what it was, but whatever exactly they believed, it certainly wasn't that humans have an immortal soul, and if they're good, they go to heaven, and if they're bad, they go to hell. Which all brings us to a rather interesting point. Believers in Israel were agreed that death is death. What they weren't so sure about is if there's a chance to live again after you die. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 19, Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go down to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit, but we could use the same word breath there that we used before. It's the same word. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. He didn't know. There have been some hints that there might be a future life. Job 19, verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. And then there was this from Daniel, Daniel 12, verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. As for you, go your way to the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. So there were hints. But realize the first quote is from the rather enigmatic Job, an ancient book, but one that's hard to know exactly what to do with and hard to feel secure from quoting anywhere in it. The second is from Daniel, a much later work. Yet the book of Daniel is famous for containing truths that the author himself didn't fully understand. Was this another one? But note this in particular. Both of these passages hint at some sort of life after death. Yet in both cases, it isn't an immortal spirit type of life, but rather a resurrection life in the flesh that takes place after some sort of a period of sleep. Now I tell you all this for the purpose of setting up what was the interesting reality in the days when Jesus appeared. 
And what was this reality? Well, there was so much confusion regarding resurrection and a future life. One could be a good Jew and not believe in the resurrection. It was a key point of the dividing line between the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection and the Sadducees who did not. Yet this divergence in understanding while causing stress did not cause one group to be seen as Jews and another group to not. They sat on the same Sanhedrin together. And it is at this point that I want to make a pivot in this message. So far, we've been keyed on the issue of death and the nature of death as what happened to a created human when that human lost life-giving, sustaining connection with God. They die as in dead with nothing else. But Fundamental Belief 26 isn't just about death. It's also about resurrection. And it is to that reality that we now turn. I am suggesting to you that there was confusion among the Jews in the days of Jesus as to whether or not there even was a resurrection, though Jesus himself is clearly on the side of the resurrectionists. In fact, Jesus claims himself to be the reason the resurrectionists are correct. John chapter 11, verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Martha's in the resurrectionist camp. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Now this exchange captures well the key point I want you to understand. Up until the time of Jesus, perhaps it was okay to be unclear on the reality of death and the prospect of life after death. But with Jesus... The confusion ends. This is why this is such an important frame, for it very clearly and singly reveals Jesus. And nowhere is the reality of the truth about death and resurrection more succinctly and clearly stated than it is by Paul in Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Doesn't that perfectly capture what we've been saying so far? You see, sin separates us from God. And when we are separated from God, we lose access to that which gives us eternal life. But God gives eternal life back to us as a gift when we put our faith in the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's when it comes back. And don't let the original lie creep back into this. Remember the serpent. You shall not surely die. Oh, yes, you will. For that is what happens when you're separated from God. But restoration to eternal life is the gift that is ours through Jesus Christ. 
Now, this is a very crucial point to note here. The gift of God through Jesus isn't where you spend your eternal existence. The gift is eternal existence. So what happens if you don't get the gift of eternal existence? Eternal non-existence. You surely die. So here's the problem. When we buy into the original lie and seek to secure for ourselves some sort of inherent eternal reality within ourselves, then we end up with an eternal problem. What do you do with the eternal selves who didn't put their faith in Jesus? Welcome to hell, or at least welcome to the doctrine of hell. You see, hell is only true if the original lie of the serpent is true. Let that sink in. Hell is only true if it is true that you will not surely die. You see, only the enemy of God could come up with a doctrine so heinous as hell that humans would experience eternal torture because they did not believe in Jesus. Only the enemy of God could come up with a doctrine so heinous and then attribute it to the Father. And this is why if you don't get this frame right, it really messes up the picture of God. But here's the good news. As long as you don't believe the original lie and you are willing to fully trust God with your life, you don't need a doctrine of hell. So what becomes of those who don't put their trust in Jesus? Well, this is borrowing from some other fundamental beliefs. But in short, their existence is consumed in the end in the lake of fire, and they no longer exist. But to those who have trusted in Jesus, the gift of God is eternal life. To receive the gift is to live forever. To fail to receive the gift is to be dead forever. It's really quite simple and actually quite rational. But back to the issue of the resurrection. I mentioned before that there was considerable confusion in the Old Testament regarding what happened in the end and even considerable confusion in the days of Jesus regarding the realities of the resurrection. You could be a respected Jew and not believe in it, but things are different now. And what makes the difference? Well, don't look for the answer in the frame. For the answer lies in the picture in the frame. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the difference between what was not understood before and what we now understand after. Things are different now. Perhaps before you could be confused about resurrection, but not anymore. 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Okay, what are the implications of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Here we go, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins." Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. And then now, this is amazing what's going to happen in this next verse because it's going to take us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's going to bring us forward to Jesus and it's going to take us all the way to the end. Here it is. You ready? Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. There it is. All of it. So simple. No immortal soul, no eternal existence apart from God. Just death through Adam and life through Jesus Christ. That's it. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the firstfruits. Then when He comes, those who belong to Him, then the end will come when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. These are not minor technicalities. This frame sits at the heart of the faith. Get it wrong, and the picture of Jesus is messed up. Get it right, and you will no longer grieve as those who have no hope, and no longer fear so much even the frailty of your own failing flesh. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He knows those who are His own. In Him is life. And He gifts life to all who put their trust in Him.
So yes, death is every bit as bad as we feared. But take heart. Jesus has overcome death. And through him, we will live forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, comfort our hearts with these words. It really is a trust issue. The lie tells us we don't have to count on you to live forever. The truth says there is no life apart from you. We choose the truth. Save us in the name of Jesus. Amen.